Praise the Lord for a change in season, huh? Amen? Yeah. Well, we're, uh, we're going to just keep worshiping as we open up God's Word. I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 20 this morning. Our series is Kingdom Love, and we've been studying the parables of the kingdom that Jesus taught to look at how the kingdom works, how the kingdom operates. I love that we get to go out now in a couple of weeks and bring all the things we've learned over the last several weeks into the community uh, and bless people, pray for them. Uh, We'll probably receive some opposition to what we're doing, in which case all the more reason to be gentle and and humble in the face of that. But uh, I'm thinking this morning, you know, I I don't know if you've been following this, but... um, Today, uh, within a few days, they're not exactly sure which exact day, was the first time that Africans were sold as slaves in America exactly 400 years ago today. And um, that should grab our emotions. In fact, this entire message this morning, I'm really hoping, will grab your emotions. Um, Because what happened last week as we worship together with New Mission, was our declaration that that's wrong. That's, that's a scar on the very ethos of our nation. And there is only one hope for that, and that is Jesus Christ. There's only one hope to bring us together through the centuries of abuse, the centuries of hurt and pain and agony, and to bring some hope that there is someone greater than all that who will one day set this entire mess right. And in the meantime, we have the privilege in Jesus of experiencing fellowship together that is pure and undefiled. And uh, that thought has been with me as I've been preparing for today. And so what I want to do today is I want to take you on a journey that I hope will awaken your emotions, how you think, uh, sorry, how you feel about the things going on around us, and particularly how you feel about the Lord. So let me give you a little warm-up on that. There's a movie out now called uh, Brian Banks. Uh, It's the story of a college football player who is outstanding who is falsely accused of rape and then he spent six years in jail and eventually the woman who accused him recanted and said that her testimony was false and he was released from prison and is trying to make it in the NFL now but I want to ask when you hear the outline of a story like that how do you feel do you rejoice when an innocent man, falsely jailed, is set free by the truth, does that grab you? Does that deep down satisfy this yearning that we have for truth and justice and righteousness? And how about this next, this next picture? What then, if we are set free from the hell we deserve by this innocent man's death? 
that you and I, no matter how many good things we have done, you and I both deserve eternal conscious punishment because we have sinned against a holy, perfect God. And yet, in the midst of that truth, he leaves the comfort of heaven where he's being adored every minute by hundreds of millions of angels, is born into our mess, is the only person who lives a sinless life, and rather than receive accolades for that, we turn against him. And your sin and my sin put him on the cross, nailed him to the cross. And in his infinite grace, he releases us from that if by faith we will receive his sacrifice as payment for our sin. We are set free from the hell we deserve by this innocent man's gruesome death. And that ought to grab us like nothing before. And I want us to get a hold of that this morning. I want us to feel it, to experience it, when we have communion, to receive afresh that, that forgiving, releasing, freeing grace that allows us to walk out of here this morning pure and filled with his Holy Spirit. What an incredible privilege. The Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the Father's heart. He aches. He waits every day at the fence for those of us who are not with him to turn around and come back. His heart aches. That's his saying, you are my treasure. Do you know that you are his treasure? Do you know that? And that every single person he desires to turn around and come back. When someone turns to God, this great celebration happens in heaven. And there is a robe put on them and a ring and sandals and honor. And there's celebration of hundreds of millions of angels. And this ought to release in us the highest levels of gratitude. And I, hope, I, I just hope in the spirit now you are, you are feeling the rise of gratitude. One of the great minds of the church actually is most well known for his heart of gratitude for what God had done for him and for what God has done for each of us. And of all the wonderful books he wrote and all the amazing uh, apologetics, G.K. Chesterton says this, gratitude is the mother of all virtues. Gratitude is the mother of all virtues because if we have that right, then it sets everything else in order. It lets us experience gratitude. And that is our warm-up for this morning's kingdom parable. So if you open your Bibles in Matthew 20, I'm going to read that parable of the vineyard workers, verses 1 to 16. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A denarius is the Roman coin that is the fee of a day laborer in that day. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do, with what, to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. These are the very words of God. Father, as we dive into this parable today, Father, we, we ask that you remind us that we are made in your image, that we have thoughts, but we also have emotions. And I pray, Lord, that you would move in our emotions today. Move, Lord, in, in the church, in our nation to reach out and recover the unity that you died for. Father, take us deeper in our relationship with new mission. Lord, work in powerful ways as we seek to be your ambassadors of the gospel in 45227. Lord, heal our land from this scourge that we have participated in. Father, open up the hope that only Jesus can open up in our, in our nation, in our time, and most of all, Lord, in our church. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look up a bit, past, uh, a bit before chapter 20 in your Bible, you'll see there's a heading there. There's a story of a rich young man that immediately precedes this. So the context of this parable is that this rich young man has uh, turned away from Jesus who said, sell everything you have and uh, follow me. So the disciples look at this and they go, well, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And so Jesus describes to them what's in it for them. 
But he reminds them that they're, they're following him and that even among them, the first will be last and the last will be first. That's how chapter 19 ends. So Jesus is clearly, by the context, telling us that this is, this is about those who are following him. This parable is about those who are following him and it is about them and their attitude towards the calling that they have received in contrast to others who have turned away. And so we know that this is what this parable is about by the context. So let's take a look. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the disciples of the kingdom are put to work in the king's vineyard. He has... He has offered to them the opportunity to participate in his kingdom. His, here, the landowner is God and the vineyard is the kingdom. And he's invited them to work. But he's invited them on the basis of leave everything and follow me. That has been the gospel since the very beginning. Leave everything and follow me. And so it is in that context that he is bringing these workers in. And that can be symbolized, if you will, the, the deal can be symbolized by the, by the denarius. It's, it's, the, it's the invitation that Jesus has brought. Now you can get confused by that because these are in the, they're working and they're being paid for that. But think of it as this is their service in the kingdom and they know what the deal is. They've been invited. Now, some people are invited into the kingdom, you know, pray and uh, pray this prayer and you can, you can have eternal life. It's more, nothing more than fire insurance. But Jesus is saying, no, leave everything and follow me. That's always been the invitation of the gospel. And, and we're not saved by our good works, right? But we are saved for good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. So there's a, there's a reality of the gospel that says, if you give everything and follow me, you will have all you need. If you don't, if you seek first the kingdom, you'll have all you need. But if you don't, you won't. Here's how he describes, how Jesus describes it in Mark 8.35. If you try to hang on to your life you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. This has always been the call to discipleship. And Jesus always said, count the cost. Count the cost. What is it going to be? Is it going to be your way or my way? Count the cost. And then make your commitment. So that's a little bit about the workers, but let's look at the landowner. He's out looking all the time, all the time. He's out looking. The king is always out looking for new workers to bring in the harvest with him. He's constantly inviting us deeper into that relationship with him. As I thought about this section of the parable, verses 3 to 7, I just see this relentless process of invitation, looking for people who are lost, looking for people who are, have no destiny, no vision, looking for people who 
need to be brought into the kingdom. And what's his motive? His motive is he has a heart of compassion, doesn't he? And so one of the questions for us is, how about us? Are we out looking for others? Are we out looking for those? Do we have his heart? Do we have his heart to invite and include into the, the, the good news of the gospel? Motivated by a heart of compassion. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, this is uh, the story of uh, Jesus responding. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He has this desire that all should be saved. He has this desire not to lose even one sheep. His attitude and his heart is to be always reaching out and like welcoming, seeking to save the lost. I had that, I had that feeling of urgency once. It, it wasn't for the right reasons, but when we were in Australia... I was uh, fortunate enough to have my three sons and my two nephews. My sisters were visiting, my two nephews, and I took all five of them out for breakfast and then for some fun downtown while everybody else got to sleep in. And it was all going swimmingly until at Darling Harbor, which is this beautiful oceanside uh, mall area, parks and place to hang out. Uh, overlooking the Sydney Opera House and the bridge, just a beautiful spot. And I lost my nephew, Andy. You don't know my sister, but she is a force to be reckoned with. And I'm looking everywhere, and I can't find Andy. So I've got these four kids. I'm yelling at this guy who works in the park. I've lost my nephew, I got to find him. My heart's in my throat. My, my, my pulse is like 190. I am absolutely frantic. And I can just imagine Andy being lost and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. I imagine what he's going through. And this, the story ended well. We found Andy. He had gone into a bathroom and then he'd wandered off. Uh, and uh, I had to tell my sister about the event because I knew he would. <laughs> and it was relief. It was joy. It was gratitude. It was like, oh, thank you. This is the, the heart of God. This is how he, you know, the famous theologian J.I. Packer says, he will not rest until the last one of his children is safely home. He has somehow, God eternal, made himself a part of this, this era that we're in that he will not be fully at peace until the last one of his children is home. And that's his heart. Now after all that, sadly, we read in verses 8 to 12, that the king's generosity is met with what? 
envy, entitlement, and grumbling. Rather than rejoicing that these guys who were stranded finally got some work, rather, rather than being thankful that they will be fed tonight, they'll be able to feed their families tonight, they're grumbling. And, you know, only one out of ten lepers came to say thank you to Jesus, right? Only, only uh, uh, everybody in the house was happy that the prodigal son came home, except the older brother. He was grumbling and nasty. And to a certain extent, isn't that a little bit like us? If we're really honest, it's a little bit like us, isn't it? You know, we, 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 have, we have lines. There are lines in our relationship with God. Well, well, you know, I'm not going to Africa. Or it's too hot. Or I'm too busy. Or I want to buy that instead. Who knows? But we, if we're honest, will have these, these thoughts. I actually have these thoughts uh, and I'm pushed by my dear wife because I don't know anybody who's, who wants to like have this, this couple stay with us because they had to sell their house to pay medical bills or this person needs a meal or let's, let's take so-and-so's kids this weekend. And I'm always like really grumbling. It's like, well, wait... <laughs> wait a minute, like, can we just have a rest? And, you know, I know she's led by the Spirit. I know that, you know, in those moments, I'm not. And I have to admit that the king's generosity often meets Dennis Beausager with grumbling. With grumbling. And one of our greatest ambitions around here is to have a culture if you haven't seen this if you're new uh, this, this card is available at the Connect Desk it describes who we are and more importantly who we want to become who Jesus is leading us to become and it says that we want to be humble servants that Jesus characterized his life as one of humble servanthood following his example we serve God by serving others. You know, culture has to be lived. Culture has to be embraced. Culture has to be intentionally thought through. And this, this is where we're being called in this parable. We're being challenged that our grumbling and our entitlement and the way we do things in response to him is, is found lacking. Look at what Jesus said about being a servant in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 to 10. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No. He says, prepare my meal, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. That's, that's the attitude. 
You know, in the movie Top Gun, Maverick and Goose get into the Top Gun because Cougar loses the edge and turns in his wings. And on the aircraft carrier, the general says to them uh, that he just hates the idea, but he has to give them a shot to Top Gun. And then he looks at Goose and he says, Hey, Goose, you're just lucky to be here. You're just lucky to be here. And in a way, that captures how I feel. I am lucky to be here. If, if Jesus didn't die for me, I would be dead today. My life was heading dead into destruction. I'm, I'm lucky to be here. I'm blessed to be here. I had nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with this. And Jesus did it for me. There's a servant in this church who is promoted to glory many years ago. Her name was Catherine Lawton. I know some people know her, but probably most of us don't. Catherine uh, spent the last several years of her life at Semhaven, and um, she was racked with pain. Arthritis, racked with pain. Catherine had found a chair that she could be reasonably comfortable with if she angled all the pillows exactly the right way. And Catherine prayed for hours and hours and hours every day. I would give her prayer lists to go through, and she would faithfully go through those. And she never once complained. Never once complained. And every time I visited her, it was absolute pure joy just to know Jesus. That is, that is the attitude of this servant here in Luke 17. That's my ambition is to be like this servant in Luke 17. And finally, the, the parable comes to the end and we see that there's going to be, the king reminds us, there's going to be a lot of reversals in the kingdom. A lot of reversals. And he actually reverses the order of what he said in Matthew 19.30. He reverses the order. Instead of saying the first will be last, the last will be first, he says the last will be first and the first will be last. In other words, all the motives that we have for serving will be revealed. All of the cost that uh, we embraced for the sake of the kingdom will be sized up by the king. And only he really knows. Only he really knows. But we will be surprised. You know, the two disciples made a case that they should sit at Jesus' right and left. And in one gospel, the mother makes the case for them. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea. And we're going to be amazed at who's sitting in the front row and who's sitting, you know, in the nosebleed sections of the big stadium in heaven, wherever that is. We just don't know. But what we do know is the king knows. And the king is just and righteous. And the king is emphasizing that the last will be first and the first will be last. He tells us elsewhere that if you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. And so, how do we, how do we interpret that? One of the thoughts that came to my mind as I looked at this is that, well, Lord, who are, who are the first? 
And I felt the Spirit saying, the first are those who think and act like siblings of Jesus, like part of the family, who keep the interest of the family in mind, who keep the interest of the kingdom in mind, the interest of the church in mind. We are family. We belong to each other. I loved yesterday with these men moving one of our widows into a new apartment. That is, according to James, pure religion right there. Taking care of widows and doing it gladly and doing it gladly and serving. It is, it is thinking like a son of the father or thinking like a daughter of the father or thinking like a sibling of Jesus that the family business, the kingdom business, is number one, top priority. And we think like a family. Because when we don't think as sons and siblings and daughters, we then tend to think like slaves. That there's this thing called the kingdom and the church, and I've got a, you know, I've got a, I've got that there, and then I've got my thing here. Now, yes, we're responsible for our families, but we have to see that in Christ, we, are, we, are, we have our families, but we're part of a bigger family. This is who we are. And we walk together and we live together. And I believe that if we see that, we will see, we will see the heart that God has for us to serve each other and to serve others. And out of that, if I look at Catherine Lawton's story, or if I look at Mary, who broke the jar of perfume over Jesus' feet, true disciples of the kingdom are filled with gratitude. And somehow in the mix, Jesus and the Holy Spirit beats out of us all the entitlement and all the envy and all the grumbling and fills us by the Holy Spirit with gratitude. She was forgiven much, so she loved much. But she did nothing except yield herself to the king. The scripture in Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so gratitude manifests itself in worship. We saw that with King David who danced an undignified dance, essentially in his underwear, in such a way that he was so joyful of what God had done. And his wife couldn't stand it. His wife couldn't stand it. But it didn't matter. He poured it all out because he was grateful to his king. Now imagine, imagine if our worship had that spirit. Imagine this this king, undignified before the Lord, broken before the Lord, like 
in a very real sense, just like Mary with the nard pouring out her perfume over the Lord, just letting it all out there. I loved Anna's testimony this morning that this, this is something that takes transformation. It doesn't happen but by the Spirit of God. Look at this uh, Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What would it be like if you walked in here next Sunday at five minutes to nine and the place was already filled with people praying, eagerly waiting for the opportunity to worship the King? What if every single one had been in the Word that morning, confessed their sin, come into the assembly and really, really give the very, very, very best we have? But this would come out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. And gratitude, finally, this last point, gratitude manifests itself in service. Gratitude manifests itself in service. Yes, it begins with worship and then it goes into service because it's the absolutely logical flow of thought. I'm saved from an eternity in hell by a man who deserved nothing more than adulation, who died for me. I'm now relieved from that punishment. For all eternity, I have the same inheritance as Jesus has. I have everything. I'm a daughter. I'm a son of the king. Wow. That makes me grateful. And the more grateful I am, the more I want to sing his praises. And the more I sing his praises, the more I want to serve him. It's a very logical procession. It follows the teaching of Jesus exactly. Dana Cochran, who's a colleague of mine, uh, is a woman of prayer in our city. And you can go to, we go to city pastors meetings, leader meetings once a month. And you can go to those meetings. And Dana's among the most gifted among us. But you can find her ordering lunches, serving lunches, cleaning, taking out the garbage. She is a servant. She is a servant, and she does it with such joy and a glow on her. It's like a glow on her. It's an honor. I didn't have enough time this morning uh, to show a video, but I'm going to include this video in my weekly email this week but it's about an 11 minute story and it it follows a woman named Rachel who realizes as her and her husband prosper in their work prosper in their family have uh, resources well beyond what they wildly imagined and they have a good friend who has a, a liver disease And the liver disease is going to claim this man's life. But the liver disease can also be dealt with by a healthy person donating part of their liver to be transplanted into the body of the person with the disease. And the donor 
is taking some medical risks, but eventually the liver grows back for the healthy donor. The liver will grow back. So Rachel comes to grips with the gratitude that she had for Jesus saving her, the gratitude she had for what she had as a family and the the financial resources they had. And she commits to being the donor for her husband's friend. And it's an incredible story because it, it raises, it raises the stakes of, of what God expects. You know, we, okay, Lord, you have my time, you have my money, you have my family, but now you're starting to meddle like my body? Whoa. So I, I want you to watch this story because it traces the journey of this woman into salvation and gratitude and worship and service. It's a beautiful story. It'll be in my, my weekly email this week. But here's what is going to happen at the very end. And Jesus in Matthew 25 says this, Then the king will say to those in his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Whoa. Do you get that? Our inheritance is the kingdom prepared since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I need clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then he goes on to say, well, to the people who didn't really remember serving him, he said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And I love that ethos of service, of pouring ourselves out. Rachel Ekman took that risk and she gave 10 years of life to her, her husband's best friend. Ten years. That is, that is servanthood. So I want to give you a couple of tools for application this week. I want us this week, I recommend this to you. I've been doing it myself, and it is pouring off the pages. Begin a list of the things you are grateful for. If you haven't done this, if you've done it recently, great. Just pull it out and add to it. If you've not done this in a while, make a list of everything you're grateful for. Put it in your journal. Put it on a piece of paper. And then have a time of worship where you just get before God. Get down on your knees and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. And share that with somebody. Share that with somebody. And what you will find is gratitude begets gratitude. It flows, it grows, it affects you, it infects you, it encourages you. So, and, and look, get emotional. Get emotional about it. There should be tears of joy. There should be, uh, you know, some of you have been through the mill and God has brought you through the mill. Some of you have defeated cancer. Some of you have lost loved ones, whatever it would be. List it all. List it all. All the, all the things that God has done for you. And then the second thing, and we can begin this 
as we head into communion now, evaluate your heart for worship and your heart for service in light of this parable and ask Jesus to enable you to make the changes that the Holy Spirit wants to direct you to make. Simple as that. So as we come into communion, I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up. We're going to have uh, prayer teams in front of us. So make that gratitude list and then evaluate your heart for worship. My hope is as you evaluate your heart for worship and your heart for service that God will show you. He's so good at this. He will show you. And I I would hope that you come in, you never come into Sunday the same again. You, You never miss a worship night. You'd never even dream of missing a worship night because you get to worship Jesus for an hour and a half. You would, you would be transformed in that. And in service that you would be, you would be, my old boss at P&G would always end every meeting by saying, how can I help you today? How can I help you today? And it would be awesome if every single person around here would be turning to each other, how can I help you today? So Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your son. We thank you for this parable which pokes deep into the natures of our hearts and shows us where we've drawn lines, Lord, in what we will do and what we won't do. And I ask, Lord, that you lift the lines, that you, that you lift the gratitude quotient of our, of our fellowship, that you lift, you lift the, the heart of worship and the heart of service, Lord. Do this by the Holy Spirit, Lord. And as we come into communion, Father, we ask that you do business with each one of us. And the Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Father, we praise your name. Communion table is open. Praise be to the Lord.